Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read uh, the chapter. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this, this book of Habakkuk. Lord, it's such a, in many ways, it's a simple story um, that a two-year-old can, can read or, or be read and enjoy. And it's as complex that, that the oldest, most mature adult um, can get lost in pondering uh, the message of this book. And so, Father, I pray that as we conclude this study, as we wrap up Jonah, Lord, we ask that you would help us to, um, to understand the things that Jonah were, was wrestling with, uh, the message that you are trying to convey to him and to us. Um, Father, I pray that by your Spirit, our, our lives, our hearts would be transformed. Father, I pray that uh, where we lack love, where we lack compassion, uh, that you would help us, Lord, um, to gain your compassion in your eyes. It, it can be a difficult thing, Lord. Uh, it's so easy to be angry and frustrated with people. Um, it's so easy to receive grace, but not to share it with others. And so, Father, we, um, we ask, Lord, that you would uh, continue the work that you started in our lives. Lord, may our love for you not grow cold. May we not be led astray by uh, the world and, and the temptations of it. Father, build within us um, a, a longing for you, a passion for you, a desire uh, to know you more intimately. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on this plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, 
which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. This is, I think, one of the funniest chapters in the whole of the Bible. The, the, the sense of humor by God, sort of this exchange between uh, Jonah and God. It's, it's almost like a parent dealing with a three-year-old. Um, at, at, at some points, I don't know whether I should be laughing or crying about like, Jonah, come on, man, pull, like grow up. But then when I start thinking about Jonah, I start thinking about my own life and, and how I've acted towards God. And so here we are, it says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. Now, what was the situation? What's the it? Uh, the very immediate thing is verse 10 of the previous chapter. It said, when God saw their deeds, those people of Nineveh, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So remember the story, backing up a few chapters. Uh, the, the, the book opens, or the letter opens with um, Jonah getting this instruction from God that he was to go um, to Nineveh, to preach against the people of Nineveh. So we know that Jonah was from Gath Hefer, which is outside of, um, in the Galilee region, sort of where Jesus is from. He says, God tells him to go up to Nineveh. This is modern day northern Iraq. This is Mosul, which is all in the news today. Um, this is a, a town where, according to Nahum chapter 3, and really the book of Nahum, there was much evil in this town. Uh, Nahum describes that as you walked into the town, that there were just bodies stacked upon bodies, uh, that the people were ruthless and wicked, and they, they killed their children and did all sorts of evil things. They hated the people of Israel, and the people of Israel reciprocated the feeling. They hated them just as much. And so we learn in this chapter, um, while some believe or state um, that God didn't go because he was, of, or God didn't go, Jonah didn't go, to Nineveh because he was afraid of the people because of their wickedness, because of their, um, their evil, the, the torture, the things that they had done to people. But, but from Jonah's own words, which we'll see today, it had nothing to do with fear. The reason he didn't go is because he knew God's character. And he feared that if he went, there might be a chance that these people would actually repent and then God would relent of his wrath towards them and the thought of that drove Jonah absolutely crazy. So instead of going to Nineveh, he runs down to Joppa, the, the port. He finds the ship that's going the farthest distance. And the ship was heading to southern Spain. It's believed that it was heading to, to Rhoda, which is modern-day Rhoda, Spain. He hops on the boat. The great storm uh, comes up. And without recapping the whole story, it's figured out that Jonah is the problem. Jonah is thrown overboard. Uh, the storm calms down. The sailors now are worshiping the true God. God delivers a great fish and swallows up Jonah. Um, 
Jonah wrestles with God for three days. Eventually, the fish throws up Jonah onto the shore. Jonah begins his walk in. Chapter 3, as he heads into the town of Nineveh, I believe that his heart, seeing it, while God worked in him back in the belly of the fish, I think that he struggled following through, that as he was following through, he was reminded of how much he hated these wicked people of Nineveh. And there was pretty solid evidence against these people. These were a ruthless people. And so he goes through the town, and, and this, is, this is amazing what happens. This would be the equivalent of, I don't know, walking into a, a, a football stadium like, I'm thinking for me, since it's football season, I'm thinking this is somebody walking into Raider Nation, the Oakland Raiders, walking through and saying, God's going to judge you guys in like three days. That would be kind of fun to do. And, uh, and then suddenly, the whole stadium just comes to Christ and they repent. This is what happens in the town. And now Jonah is furious because God... Changed, not so much that he changed his mind, but he, he said he was going to come destroy them. But the people responded to the message, and therefore God relented the calamity that was to come to them. And so we pick up the story. The, really, this, the center of this whole book, the, the message I believe that's, that's being communicated that God wants us to see is he wants us to see his nature and that he would like us to become like him that we would view people the same way as he does, that we would recognize that Christ died for all. And so those people that we have the most difficult time with, that we would develop a, a, like in our hearts a, a love for them, compassion for them, that we would be willing to sort of get over the things that are keeping us away. And I think the key to this book, which I've said multiple times, the key to understanding Jonah is understanding that Jonah actually wrote Jonah the mere fact that he wrote Jonah sort of gives credence to, to the reality that he finally understood what God was trying to teach him. And so we see in verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And this word for anger is, is, is the word that you would use to describe like bright hot coals. Like he was mad. Veins in his neck are bulging, furious. But he's not done yet. <laughs> he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, O oh God, or therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life. From me, for it is for death is better to me than life. It's hilarious. This is this is world class temper tantrum. Like he just wants to die. Um, some of the issues, the key to understanding the problem with Jonah, is I counted seven of these. If you in these three verses count the eyes and the mys, or the me's. These are the issues. Seven times Jonah says, this is what I said. Well, I was still in my own country. I fled. I knew. I have to skip a few lines. Take my life from me. 
For it is better for me, for death is better for me than to life. Like it's all about Jonah. He's so inward focused. And because the whole world is revolving around Jonah at this point, he's absolutely furious with what God has done. And it's the, the irony here is in the midst of his temp, temper tantrum, he has great theology. Like, look what he says about God. The, the thing that's making him so mad is that God is so good. Like, he says, you're gracious. You're compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness. One who relents concerning calamity. These are all of the fruits of God's nature that Jonah has personally received. He's great taking them on himself. He doesn't deserve any of these benefits from God, and none of us do. But he has no desire to then sort of pass on the blessing or to allow these things work in his heart. And his request is, kill me. Like, I'm so furious with this, just kill me. Uh, One thing I've heard the saying, um, you know, it's normally an admonition to young people who are in the church, and it's like, well, you know, you gotta you gotta stay holy because God can't use you unless you're holy and set apart from him. I would say that God could move in whoever he wants to use. Like Jonah was not a sparkling Sunday school kid that was doing all right and really hunky dory about God. He is angry this whole time, and the greatest revival happens. Now I'm not encouraging us as a way to go reach our community to, to throw temper tantrums and to get angry at everybody. Like I'm not suggesting this. All all I want to point out is God can save people however he chooses, and he can use the most broken vessel to do it. Um, This story seems so extreme. I'm like, has anybody really ever been that mad? Now, a few years ago, my brother-in-law, he he mentioned a book that he really loved. And so I, I can't, like, I can't remember. It was five years ago, 10 years ago. I feel like it was a while ago. But there's a book by Mark Buchanan, and the title of the book, it's excellent, is Your God is Too Safe. And the premise of this book is is he's challenging Christians in in many regards that that an idol for a lot of us has become our safety, our personal well-being. I notice this when we take a trip to, and I'm not saying praying for safety, I just prayed for their safety. I'm not like saying that safety is bad. But a lot of times like our prayers are, okay, I'm going to Africa. Lord, I don't care what you do, just get me home safe. Don't let the plane break down. Don't let the bus break down. Don't let anything break down. Just keep me comfortable in my own little world. And I remember a few years ago that one of the first missionaries that that my wife and I, we personally sort of sponsored and and prayed for, um, it was really challenging. While she was serving in the Middle East, she said, "I've, I've decided to stop praying for safety, and I don't want people praying for my safety because... I've learned that through hardship, is that, that often is the center of God's will. Um, and in this book by Mark Buchanan, there's a story of this man who I'm going to read this section from this book. Uh, from your God is too safe. He said, I heard Paul Youngi Cho speak a few years back. Youngi Cho is pastor of the largest church in the world. Several years ago, as his ministry was becoming international, he told God, I will go anywhere to preach the gospel except Japan. He hated the Japanese with gut-deep loathing of what the Japanese troops had done to the Korean people and to member of, members of Yonggi Cho's own family during World War II. The Japanese were his Ninevites. 
Through a combination of a prolonged inner struggle, several direct challenges from others, and finally, an urgent and starkly worded invitation, Cho felt called by God to preach in Japan. He went, but he went with bitterness. The first speaking engagement was to a pastor's conference, 1,000 Japanese pastors. Cho stood up to speak, and what came out of his mouth was this, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then he broke down and wept. He was both brimming and desolate with hatred. At first one, then two, then all 1,000 pastors stood up. One by one, they walked up to Yungi Chu, knelt at his feet, and asked forgiveness for what they and their people had done to him and his people. As this went on, God changed Yungi Chu. The Lord put a single message in his heart and mouth. I love you. I love you. I love you. Sometimes God calls us to do what we least want to do in order to reveal our heart, um, to reveal what's really in our heart. How powerful is the blood of Christ? Can it heal hatred between Koreans and Japanese? Can it make a Jew love a Ninevite? Can it make you reconciled to, well, you know who? I think this story sort of highlights what's happening in Jonah. It's, it's extremely powerful. When we understand Jonah's hatred for these people, how God is wrestling with Jonah, not, not in a way that he's sort of like coming down on Jonah, but he's, he's speaking to Jonah in a way that's allowing Jonah to sort of process and sort of um, learn the lesson in, in a more powerful way. It's, it, it's really a, a transformational lesson. It's one that, that deep within his soul, through a very painful way, Jonah is coming to understand the compassion of God in a way that he has never, ever understood. Um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, um, you know, we've, we've learned to, to sort of put on a front. We've learned to sort of uh, cover up the nastiness, the ugliness in our heart. But, but if we're honest, in our hearts, a lot of times, we, we very much before God are like Jonah. Um, we lose sight of what God has done in our lives. And we can just focus and harbor on this, this, this grain of bitterness. And, and this is a rhetorical question, so don't answer it. That's just rhetorical means don't answer. It's a question for you to process. Um, the, idea, the question is, is who do you hate? Like who, who within you or what group of people within you can you just not handle? I will leave any political candidate out of this, any uh, political party, but, but maybe that's a place to start. Um, really, in the midst of where we are culturally, there's, I think there's a lot of possibilities to where hatred within you could be stirred up. Or maybe I'm just speaking to myself, I don't know. But I think that God desires us and is, is sort of, is, is, 
through the book of Jonah is, is forcing us into a corner and forcing us to sort of deal with the condition of our own heart. And who are the people that we hate? Who are the people, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but this one group of people, I'm not. I'm not going to let it go. Maybe it's an individual. I don't know. And I love God's question to Jonah. And Jonah's thrown his temper tantrum. He's expressed why he is upset. He's made it very clear to God why he's upset. He basically said, this is, I told you so. I knew, this is exactly what I knew you would do. Because you're like this. You're so compassionate. You're so loving. You're so patient. You're, you're quick to relent with your wrath. I knew it. And so then God looks at Jonah and he said, do you have good reason to be angry? And if they were playing a board game, this is where Jonah would just flip over the table and run away. He's going he's, he's gonna to split. It's beautiful. You notice that God doesn't issue an indictment on Jonah. He, he asks him a question. Jonah, my son, why, why are you so angry? Do you have good reason to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer this question, verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. He took a bag of popcorn, threw it in the microwave, got his soda, and he's just wait. He's like, maybe God will like, maybe they're going to mess up and maybe God will like undo. Like he's not answering God's question. Maybe he took the question like, hey, do you have any good reason to be angry? Jonah's like, maybe, maybe not. Maybe God is going to respond. Maybe I just sort of reacted too soon. Let's go get good seats far enough from the blast zone. And I'm going to get some popcorn. I'm going to watch. And maybe God will do what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, just to basically turn it into glass. And so there he is. He's eating his popcorn. He's, he's, He's waiting to see what God would do. And then in verse 6, so God appointed. Now, I want to point out, I want to point out this word appointed to you. So in verse 6, we see God appointed a plant. Verse 7, we see God appointed a worm. Verse 8, we see God appointed a scorching east wind. If we were to go back to chapter 1, verse 17, we, we would see the same thing that God appointed a great fish. Um, there's sort of this picture of, of God's hand, that God is sort of behind all of these things. And so Jonah's eating his popcorn, he's drinking his soda, he's kind of feeling like, ah, it's kind of, oh man, we're kind of in the Middle East. Like we're away from the Mediterranean Sea, the breeze isn't out here, it's really kind of warm. And then all of a sudden this plant sprouts up and keeps growing and provides a little shade. It's like, oh, this is, this is beautiful, I got shade now. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Isn't God gracious? Like, Jonah's having a temper tantrum. God is, is just creating it. So like, Jonah, let me, I'm still going to be good to you. I'm still going to be gracious to you. I'm still going to be compassionate to you. Or maybe you're a little bit like me, and I think, oh, God just gave him a little rope to hang himself with. You know, so this plant comes up. And we read, coming verse 6, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. This is wonderful. A best seat in the house. Now I got shade over me, and I'm happy. But God (laughs) appointed a worm when dawn came the next day. So here's this little caterpillar. 
September. Jonah's like, ah, what happened to my plant? So the plant withered, it dies, or the wind's going to come. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better than life. I, um, every time I read this verse, I, I don't know when the, like in your life, the hottest situation you've ever found yourself in, but whenever I read this verse, it takes me back to the late 90s. And when I was in the military, um, I don't remember like how it came up, but, but somebody above us in our, in our platoon, they said, we want to send a sniper element out. So there was like four or five of us that went out to the middle of the desert. And they say, I forget what they called it, but it was a fancy term to say, we want to see how long you can survive in the extreme temperature. And so at that time, this, uh, the temperatures, I don't know what the ground temperature was. It was like between 130 and 150 degrees with the ground. And so we're like, are you serious? And, and so we're like, yeah, yeah, you're going to go out here, and there's trains that go by, so we want you to document all the trains that go by. And we're like, okay. We're thinking, how many trains can like, possibly go by? Turns out there's a lot of trains going by. And within 24 hours... Like, almost all of our water was gone. And, and the water that we had now was probably, like, bo- like, just shy of boiling temperature, so you didn't really want to drink it. We went from being, like, tactical in the bushes to, to being totally sprawled out, half delirious. One of my officers, well, I was introduced to this song by Johnny Cash, I hear the train coming. And he just is going through this whole thing. Like, he's just sort of sprawled out in the desert. We're all just, like, dying. Finally, our chief calls it and says, listen, you're going to kill us. Like, we, we, can't, we, we can't go. We, like, you've done your experiment. We've made it about 36 hours or however long it had been, but we need to, we need to wrap this up and go in. And they said, no, 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 we want to, like, we want to keep you out there. But we'll tell you what, we'll do, like, an emergency resupply and so they were like, the helo truck is coming in, which is a fake helicopter. It's just a truck. So this helicopter came in, threw us out some like five-gallon jugs of water that were filled with ice. And so those lasted for about two hours before they were, um, before they're coming in. I'm, we're talking on the secure radio tour. The rest of our platoon back there, like, you guys got to talk to somebody because we're dying out here. And I remember at some point the guy comes back and he's like, hey, did you get the, did you get the package? Like, yeah, we got the water. It's like 200 degrees now. He's like, open the package. Open the package. So we unscrew the lid. <laughs> Turns out there's a bunch of Snickers bars and like, that were now melted. And uh, we got pulled in. It was miserable. The point of the story, I guess, is when I see this, I relate to Jonah. Like Jonah's lost his plant. This scorching wind in the desert. He's like melted, delirious. He's in that place where I don't even know, so I don't even know if I'm still reading this in his temper tantrum. Well, there's still a little bit of temper tantrum, but he's just like, death just sounds better than what I'm experiencing right now. A scorching east wind, the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. Death is better for me than life. Again, he's just pleading to die over and over and over again. And so here comes God on scene again. I love it. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? (laughs) 
First, he asks him the question, hey, do you, do you have good reason just to be angry? And God, Jonah storms off. Now, God says, now what about this plant? Do you, do you have anger for this plant? And now I see Jonah sort of snapping at God. I have good reason to be angry about the plant. <laughs> like, and he says, and he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Oh, that's his response. I got it mixed up here. So God says, do you, have anger? do you have reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah says, I have reason to be angry about the plant. Even I have, I have reason to be angry to death. Like nothing's going right with Jonah. He's furious. When I see about God's question in this, what I see is a, a, a repeated sort of theme in God's questions. First he says, are you angry? Why are you angry? Do you have good reason? Now he says, do you have good reason to be angry about this plant? Jonah says, of course. And what I've come, the, the thing that I, uh, how do I navigate this? If you're a person that's getting angry at everybody and all the time, and from your position that you think all of the reason that you're angry is because of them, like I might give you one opportunity and you can say, I'm really upset at this person for what they did. And if you can look at all of your, I have very good relationships with everybody else, and there's this one situation. But I would, I would sort of caution you if you say, I'm angry at this person, I'm angry at this person, I'm angry at this situation. I would plead with you to maybe examine yourself. Because that might be the, the piece that connects all the dots. And I think that Jonah is just angry at everything at this point. And the problem isn't the people of Nineveh. The problem isn't God. The, the problem isn't this plant. The problem's not this worm that came up and ate his plant. The problem is that within Jonah's heart, his heart is rotten. And everything is making him angry. And so now God is going to ask him some more things. Or, 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 or he's going to ask a question, but he's going to point a couple things out. Verse 10. The key verse of Jonah are these last two key verses. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. So the thing that Jonah is having this temper tantrum about is this plant. This plant grew up. Now he's all angry. And, and, and God says, you're, you're angry about this plant. You didn't. You didn't like till the ground you didn't put the seed in you didn't water it you didn't care for it it wasn't like this is your tomato garden that you've been working all summer for and then all of a sudden a rabbit gets in there and chews your whole garden up and it's like i've been working for months and the stinking rabbit or gopher this happened to me so i i like understand like that frustration when you do all of this work and you're hoping for some some fruit None of this was Jonah's case. Jonah was like, he's like, you're sitting there and this plant came up and then it went away. You did nothing. You have no reason to be upset. You should just be thankful for that small window of relief that you were given. And then God's going to transition from the illustration of this plant over to the city of Nineveh. So now he says, should not I have compassion on Nineveh? Now this... This makes us sort of step back. So the immediate connection is the idea that Jonah didn't do anything to this plant and he had compassion for the plant. Now God says, should not I have compassion on Nineveh? Which sort of makes the case that God has been 
doing a whole lot of stuff. And in it. Jonah just walked in and, and, and said a few words. But it was God who had been working on the people long before um, Jonah ever showed up. In fact, if you, um, I, I should have written it down, but the first mention of Nineveh is back in Genesis. Early, early pages of Genesis, you see Nineveh mentioned. And so the, the, the sort of the idea is what God is saying, listen, you're so angry about the people of Nineveh, but I'm the one who created those people. I'm the one who've been working on their hearts and, and cultivating this whole situation so that all you had to do is walk through the city in one day and speak a few little words and that you saw what happened, that the whole town repented. Jesus, in Matthew 12, points back to the people of Nineveh, authenticating that this repentance was legitimate, was real, that these people will stand up at the judgment day and that they will speak judgment to the Jewish leaders of Israel during the time of Jesus' life. That's a powerful thing. But here we have Jonah throwing this temper tantrum. He says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? So there's, there's some thoughts, this right and left hand. God says, should I have compassion? There's, all, there's these people that don't know the difference between their right and their left hand. So some commentators would say, well, what this means is they're, they're children because they don't know the, the difference between their right and their left. Um, other commentators, I think, have made a stronger case for, for me. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But the idea is that these people are so far from God that they have zero spiritual baseline. They don't know the difference from right and wrong. And, and really... Um, Even in the United States, if you were raised in a non-Christian home, we have been influenced by the things of the Scripture, whether you know it or not. Like many of our laws, like our whole idea of right and wrong and how you treat humanity or you don't treat humanity, this, this starts at, a, at an early age. And if you were to be raised in another environment where the principles of the Bible, whether or not you know that they've had an influence, didn't have a role in conditioning your thought process, it's not hard to be conditioned in an environment where, like, the thought of doing something isn't even a big deal. Like the thought of killing a baby, no big deal in some cultures. The thought of eating horse, no big deal in some cultures. In our culture, we're not as really uh, into eating horses, like, like, there's normally like a big, especially if I said, why would you eat a horse? It's meat? I don't know. Like, like I'm, not, I'm not endorsing eating horses. I don't want to get in trouble or run out of town. Like, all I'm saying is like, uh, like on the other side, Anne, my wife tells a story of growing up in Spain. She, she had a, a neighbor, and the thought of eating corn in Spain was the grossest thing that they could possibly think of because that was for the animals. That was like eating dog food. And so, I, like, her dad tells this story about this guy, like, one afternoon, he's like, come on, I have, I have a, canned, a thing of canned corn. Will you just have one bite of corn 
for me to show that we're friends and I'll eat whatever. I forget how the whole story goes, but he tells a story about his Spaniard buddy like eating the corn, like trying to get to his lips. And he's like, <laughs> like, he just, like he couldn't get the corn even in his mouth, let alone to like eat a bowl of it. And we think that's so stupid. It's just corn. Well, from an early age, you've, we've been introduced to corn and told. And so I think God is saying is like, Jonah, you're going in from this very Jewish mentality. You've, you've had the scriptures. You've had the revelation that I've given to the, the nation of Israel, understanding right and wrong and do's and don'ts and, and, and what I expect of them. The people of Nineveh, they have no moral compass. And the things that you're seeing are, are making you so mad but the reality is, it's in, in many ways, they didn't have the guidance that you have. So you should be more compassionate for them. And we live in an, in an age where our culture is shifting. Like, like it shifted dramatically. Like, we, like, like we're almost... Like where we used to be like, oh, there was the Christian era and we're like post-Christian sort of living in the wake and there's still a lot of... Like we're, as Christians, like are so far removed from our culture, like things have shifted so radically, like we don't, we really don't have a lot of voice in our, in our culture anymore. And so we can get all upset and try to like legislate stuff and try to like force our country to be more Christian, but like, our, like we're so far from the biblical worldview in our nation that, that we as Christians as in our nation have to sort of rethink how we reach out to the world around us. And I think that this is a lesson that God is, is, is teaching here. He's like, you want me to just destroy this city that I've been pouring into, investing in, trying to reach since the early pages of Genesis, you come in here one day, they all come to faith, and you want me to destroy them? It's like, Jonah, you've missed everything. And you could back this up to Ark, like Valley Center. Like, I don't, like, probably go back to the, the Native Americans, most likely were the first people in Valley Center. And I believe that God was working way back then to reach our community. God has been at work in our community in our, in our larger city, our state, our, our nation. And so I think that there's a challenge here, like, that as, it's like the timing of this in the middle of the election sort of season. Like, I think it's fair to say that our a nation is divided greater than it's ever been before. And so it's very, like, easy for me to assume that each of us are, are getting more and more polarized on one side, and to me, as I read this, as I study the book of Jonah, I believe that God is, is convicting to say, you know what, those on the other side of the aisle, and I'm not even saying what side you're on, like you need to develop a, a love and a compassion and, and help them come to know who God is. Because we can't expect people to change their views until they really come to know the loving God. This God who died for us. This this command is for all peoples. And the thing that really stood out to me a lot and probably was in Africa five weeks ago, um, probably had to do with a lot of the... Um, so Joe Wagnell and I, we've, we've 
in some respects, we've had this big like role reversal. Um, I knew Joe in the military. Joe, Joe was a guy that was within um, the special warfare community, but he was doing exactly what he's doing now for the missionaries, but he was doing it for the SEAL teams. So he was sort of, um, you know, with us, making sure that everything was taken care of so that we could basically go out. And so a lot of people think, oh, that's like a secondary job. That's not really that important. But the guys that are like going out, they're like, this guy is critical. Those, the supporting people behind us, like you realize when you go out on this mission, there's like 100 people behind you enabling you to go. And so this trip, like seeing Joe work, it was really like, Joe's like, do you want to work now? I'm like, no, Joe, remember, my thing is to break things, give it to you, you fix it, and to go out. So I'm not here to necessarily, well, we'll let John do the work, we'll let Daniel do the work, and I'll just sort of talk to the people. And, uh, and there was one point where Joe and I were talking, and he said, he's like, you know, like, it's hard to quantify what I do. But as I'm talking to him and that, that missionary that's uh, with SIM that came in was church planning way, way, way out in the bush in Africa. He needed Joe to fix a solar thing. He's like, well, I feel like I'm helping them to stay out. And then, then the same thing that stood out to me was like, well, Joe, now I feel like I'm behind you helping you go. Like a lot of times, like when, when you focus on missions and if God has called you to go, then go. Like, don't, don't, like, wherever, if, if God's calling you to Mosul, Iraq, then go. But God has called all of us to be involved in world missions, from Valley Center to the ends of the earth. And so while you might live in Valley Center, maybe you're in retirement, you have a role for the missionaries that we support. Like, our, our job is critical for them out there in many ways, and I take that seriously. And maybe you've never been to Africa, maybe you've never been to Taiwan, maybe you've never been to Romania or anywhere else that our missionaries go, but you can have a very active role in praying for them. Uh, like, and I'm, this is not a negative thing because I'm so blown away at our church because when a need surface, surfaces, like it's always met and it, it, it's really been a faith stretching thing for me over the years. Like when some need comes up and I'm like, well, I think we can do this as a church. And I know Ruth, I don't know if I've seen Ruth today, but Ruth is always like, oh, it's going to be okay. And I'm like, no, that's like, a, that's a, what was I thinking? Like, and so when we look at Jonah, the key to understanding is the book begins with God's voice and if we look at the last two verses, the last two verses are a question. So it would have been appropriate for Jonah to respond. <laughs> but the lack of Jonah's response is the most powerful response that could have been given. Because I think Jonah's response is that then God used Jonah to pen the book of Jonah. And Jonah, in his lack of responding, I think it shows that he got it, that his heart was changed. We don't know. I can only speculate. We see the grace of God. God has always been God. God has always been working by grace. You have never been able to save yourself or justify yourself based on works from Genesis to Revelation. It's always been by faith. God has always been a gracious, loving, and kind God. 
And God not only wants us to receive this grace and to receive this forgiveness, but He wants us to be transformed by it so that when we turn from here and go out into the world and we engage with people who don't think like us, who don't believe like us, who do things that we think are absolutely crazy, wrong, immoral, that we would have been so impacted by the grace of God that then we would turn and love and be graceful and kind and loving so that we might be able to share the gospel of Christ with them. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, there's so much to ponder in the book of Jonah. Father, I pray that this, this story would penetrate deep into our hearts. Lord, that we would not harden up, that we would not resist you, your spirit. But Lord, that we would sort of lay ourselves open before you and say, Lord, what, where am I filled with hate? Where am I resisting you? Where, where am I lacking in compassion and love and forgiveness and grace? Father, it's a difficult thing for us to be a forgiving people, to be a loving people, to be a people with your eyes uh, for the world around us. So Lord, I pray that you would use us as a, as a church family to be a light uh, to those here in Valley Center that we would uh, play a key role uh, in the work that you're doing around the world. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you've poured out upon us Thank you for the cross, and it's in Christ's good name we pray.